Um, I don't know if you were here two weeks ago, but two weeks ago we wrapped up the prayer series that we've been doing for the past year. And so in case you weren't here, I just wanted to kind of fill you in on what happened two Sundays ago. We reviewed all of those prayers we've been praying. Um, some of you will remember, some of you weren't here. But every month or two, I would ask you to pray a simple sentence, just one sentence for the whole church, for you, your family, and our church family. And every couple months, we would change what that sentence was. So two Sundays ago, in our big finale, we recapped all of those prayers and the artist from heaven's least actually painted paintings for us for each of those prayers they're on the back wall over there and what i asked was for people to commit to praying one just pick one that you will pray every day for the next year until easter that you'll pray for you, your family, our church family. And I said, if we all just pick one of these prayers, next Easter, we're going to be celebrating a host of miracles. An amazing thing God does. And so people came, and um, they would sign their name on a sheet of paper and then initial the side of the picture frame as their commitment that this is the prayer I'm going to pray every day for the next year. So if you want to do that, those prayers are going to be there through the month of June, okay? And then after June, we're going to hang them up. So they're back there. Let's see if I can remember them all off the top of my head. The last one we did is, Lord, help us walk in your rhythm. This was a prayer that we would have healthy rhythms of work and rest. And some of us um, in our congregation need jobs. Some of us need jobs that allow us to have a family life. And um, so it's a prayer about that. There was, Lord, send workers into your harvest. This is a prayer of compassion for people who do not yet know Jesus. That God would keep raising up people to reach out to them. Um, there is the prayer, Lord, make us clean. And that's a prayer for spiritual healing, emotional healing, relational healing. There's so many, so many of us that need some sort of healing in our life. Um, there was the prayer, Lord, help us see people as you do. You remember that one? It's a prayer to see ourselves and other people with the grace that God sees us, but also with wisdom and insight to know how to help. Um, there's a prayer, Lord, let us desire what you desire. That so often we desire things that are not healthy for us. There's people in our congregation who are battling addictions and things. So it's a prayer for that and just for us to desire the good things that God has for us. Um, there's a prayer, Lord, help us to better know you and be your church. That we don't want to be the church that we think we should be. We want to be the church that God wants us to be. And then there's the last prayer is the prayer that kind of holds them all up. It was the prayer of the disciples when they came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. That we would be a praying church. So all those prayers are back there along with the Lord's Prayer. If you want to commit just to pray one of those sentences every day until Easter, you can sign your name back there and initial the side of the picture frame, all right? I don't want you to miss out on the opportunity. Okay. We're in James for summer. That's what we're covering, the book of James. So if you open your Bibles, um, if it's you're grabbing one of the Bibles in the pews 
Um, the blue ones, it's page 1043. All right? 1043. James. James is my first favorite book of the Bible. I say first favorite because the longer I've been a Christian, the longer my list of favorite books grows. You know? But my very first one that was on the list was James. And it's probably because it's so simple and easy to read. Um, and so if you would have asked me like way back in middle school or, or fifth grade or something like that, what my favorite book of the Bible was, I would have said James. In high school, I would have said Psalms because I was emotionally a hot mess in high school. But um, before that, it was James. And um, I love James. It's so simple and easy to understand, and it's practical. Like every sentence is just Absolutely practical. Um, I think because it's so clear and straightforward, a lot of times we miss the depth and the richness that is in James. And so today I want to spend a little time just understanding the context of this book that we're going to be studying the rest of the summer. Okay? So James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. James. Who is James? There's a few candidates, because there's a few Jameses in the New Testament. There's two who were disciples of Jesus. Um, James, son of Zebedee, who's John's brother, and then James, son of Alphaeus. Probably not either one of them. Because they were martyred too early to write this. Um, church history and Bible scholars almost all agree that this was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, just, just to be clear, Mary, um, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. She was a virgin and she conceived Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the whole, and God spoke to Joseph in a dream and said, Hey, even though Mary's pregnant, I want you to take her to be your wife and um, adopt her son. And that's what Joseph did. <clears throat> but Joseph and Mary were not celibate the rest of their married lives. <laughs> um, they went on and had more children. And so um, James is the first one that gets named in Scripture. Um, Mark records that after Jesus had grown up and he began his ministry, he was going around preaching, he comes back to his hometown in Nazareth. And, and the people there, they got offended by him because they knew about his scandalous birth. They, they knew the shadiness of his birth. He was not a high society family, right? And they're like, who is this guy thinking he can come back and preach to us? This is what they said. This is from Mark chapter 6, verse 3. They said, isn't this the carpenter? Joseph was a carpenter. He passed his trade down to his eldest son. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. If you'll just leave that up on the screen. Um, I think it's, I think it's a little humorous because they don't say, isn't this Joseph's son? Do they? They knew he wasn't Joseph's son. They knew it. Joseph and Mary were engaged. Mary 
went away and was visiting her sister or her cousin Elizabeth and she comes back pregnant. They knew Jesus wasn't Joseph's son, but they didn't know who the father was. So they say, isn't this Mary's son? And and his brother is James. James is listed first because he would have been the next one. Yeah. So James, like he and Jesus are bunk mates growing up, you know? And I just want you to imagine for a minute, like how much James must have looked up to his older brother Jesus while he's growing up. I mean, from the time James is like this big, he's hearing stories from his mom, Mary, and, and from his dad, Joseph, not about Santa Claus. He's hearing stories about the miraculous birth of his brother. Where there was angels and the star and shepherds and magi and gifts and all this. Like, he's hearing those stories from like this high. And, and Joseph, he passes down, he teaches Jesus the family trade of being a carpenter. And then Joseph dies. And James doesn't have that father figure in his life. And who steps up is Jesus. Jesus would have been the one who stepped up. And continued to lead and provide for the family. He carried on the family business. And of course he's kind and he's so wise and good. You can just imagine how James kind of idolized his older brother. And then they grew up. And Jesus leaves. He He leaves the family to become a celebrity preacher. And so James now has to step up into that role and and take care of their widowed mom. And I can just imagine James being like so proud of his big brother as he's watching him preach and, and seeing these crowds come. And he's so proud of him. But at the same time, I think maybe a little jaded. Because James never really gets to dream dreams for his own life. Like since the time he was born, his whole family has revolved around Jesus' destiny. And here Jesus is healing people, but he didn't save Joseph from dying. I don't, you know, right? There's some tension there. And um, at one point... The crowds begin that start surrounding Jesus are so huge. His family really starts to worry for him. Mark 3, it says this. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. You gotta, this happened not long after Jesus went into the desert and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, right? And, and then he, he, so he's fasted for 40 days. He comes out, he gets baptized by their cousin John. They already knew John was crazy. <laughs> John lived in the desert. He ate locusts and honey and wore camel's hair and he was an eccentric. And then John and Jesus claim that like a dove came down from heaven and God spoke and, you know, and then now Jesus is continuing this ministry and he, he can't even eat because the crowds are so big and they're like, he's going nuts. 
And so they plan an intervention. It says this a little later in the same chapter. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. His own family can't even get to him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will is my brother and sister and mother. I'm sorry, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. How do you think that went over with the family? I think Jesus was just using it as like a teaching moment for the crowd, but I can just imagine James being like, oh, really? So that's how it's going to be now. You know, like we have our whole lives revolved everything around you. You know, you go off, I take care of mom, and now you're just too big of a celebrity preacher to even associate with us. Okay. And from here we see some amino, I'm not going to say that word, um, <laughs> that the relationship between Jesus and his brothers deteriorates. The next story we get about Jesus and his brothers comes from John chapter 7. It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He's still preaching, going around. He did not want to go in Judea, where Jerusalem was. Because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. Why? Because he was claiming to be God. And that's, they thought, was heresy. Um, But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. What does it say? For even his brothers did not believe him. They were daring Jesus to go where it was dangerous. And I don't, I don't think they wanted him actually to be harmed. I think they were calling his bluff. I think they were saying, you, you, it's all about you being a public figure now, Jesus. You know, you want to keep making these claims. Okay, go ahead. Why don't you just go down to Jerusalem and see how that goes for you? I think they were calling his bluff. You know, the intervention didn't work. And so now they're trying other ways to help him understand where his actions are going to lead him. And Jesus doesn't go with them. And, um, but he goes down later secretly. And it's not that trip to Jerusalem, but... Another trip to Jerusalem where he goes publicly and then he is crucified by the Jewish leaders because they consider him a heretic. And I just, um, I can't imagine the agony James felt about that. Like seeing his older brother who he had just grown up like adoring and idolizing being nailed to wood. And hung up there, tortured, just slowly dying. And I can't just imagine the torment inside of him. And he's just thinking, like, I tried to stop him. We tried to warn him 
that this is what was going to happen. But he disowned us. He like publicly disowned us. He wouldn't listen. First Corinthians 15, 3 through 7 says this. This is Paul writing about what he learned. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's the Greek name for Peter. And then to the twelve which would have included the other Jameses, part of the 12 disciples. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at that time, meaning other believers, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the other sent ones. That's what apostles mean. Jesus appears to James. He makes a point of it. Can you imagine what that reunion was like? (laughs) James seeing his resurrected brother with the, the scars of the nails in his hands and his feet. And he realizes that he wasn't crazy. He's God. And he actually chose that path. He chose to go and die. And I I can just imagine James, it's like the light bulb goes off. Like his whole life, he thought he was sacrificing for Jesus. He, he thought he had laid his life aside to serve Jesus. And in that moment, when he sees his resurrected brother, he's like, oh no, I got it wrong. Jesus sacrificed his life for me. Jesus laid down his life for me. That's what was happening the whole time. And it just wrecks James. And his story is completely different from then on. We get the rest of his story from the book of Acts. Acts 1 records how after Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered his disciples somewhere around Bethany. And he gave them specific instructions. He told them to wait in Jerusalem and pray until God would send the Holy Spirit who would empower them to share the good news. About Jesus and the resurrection from the dead and salvation from sins. And um, Acts one fourteen says James, he was a part of that group who gathered in Jerusalem and they prayed every day for 10 days. And after 10 days after Jesus ascended up into heaven was the festival of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was an annual Jewish festival when Jews from all over would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it. And so Acts chapter 2 tells us there's Jews who have gathered from every nation under heaven, or at least known in the Roman Empire. (laughs) Um, They come from all over to celebrate Pentecost. And that's when God sends a spirit. And the, the... Believers who had been gathering to pray, about 500 of them, they started speaking in all these different languages and they go out into the crowds and they start telling people the good news about Jesus Christ in their own language. And it's this miracle. 3,000 Jews are saved that day. And they are so excited. They stay. God keeps doing miracle after miracle. Within a few days, their numbers have swelled to like 5,000 people. 
And it was just this incredible time. I want to read real quick from Acts chapter 2 what it was like, what was going on. And James is part of this group. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I just feel like singing Kumbaya after reading that. You know, like it was just beautiful what was happening. But it was completely unsustainable. You know, and I was like in college and I'd read that. I'm like, oh, if only the church could be like that today, you know. Okay, we have to be real. One of the reasons that they met every day is because most of them were homeless. They had traveled from where? Other nations. They didn't have homes. They didn't have jobs there. (laughs) They're just so excited about these miracles. They're just camping out. And the Jewish leaders start to freak out about this rapidly growing group of Jews, most of whom are homeless, and they're worshiping a Jewish rabbi that they were pretty sure they had crucified. Right? You can understand, like, from the perspective of the Jewish leaders, this is like a hippie convention with everyone hallucinating miracles and dead rabbis and, you know, and it's, and they're converting more people and it's just growing and so they decide to break it up. And they do that first by imprisoning the ringleader, Peter, right? That does not go well. An angel breaks him out of prison twice. And um, they can't figure out how Peter keeps getting out of prison. And so they grab a different leader. They grab Stephen and they stone him to death. And, and that breaks up the hippie convention. Acts records that a great persecution breaks out among the Jewish Christians and they scatter. They flee. Where are they going to? It doesn't say, but the, it's presumed back home where they came from. They're going back to the different nations. Peter also leaves, but it is James who stays. James is the one who stays in Jerusalem and cares for the persecuted Christians who cannot flee. And he becomes a pillar of that church in Jerusalem. Acts 15 records the first council of the Christian church. Uh, It was convened because um, as the persecuted Christians scattered and they went back to the nations where they were living, they shared the story of Jesus. And Gentiles, that's just non-Jewish people, began getting saved. And so there was this controversy. Well, okay, Gentiles who become believers in Jesus, do they... Do they need to become Jews? Especially do they need to become circumcised? Do they have to follow all the laws that God gave to Moses for the Jewish people? This was a big controversy. So they convened the council in Jerusalem. 
And um, I think I can find it here. I want to read just a little bit of what happens. Um, Peter speaks up, and then Paul and Barnabas speak up. But it's not until James speaks that the matter is decided. He gives the deciding speech. And this is what James says. This is from Acts 15, verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets from the Old Testament are in agreement with this. As it is written, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So that's the quote from the Old Testament prophets. And then James continues, and he says, It is my judgment, therefore. That we should not make things difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I'm a Gentile, guys. And I'm so thankful that James stood up And said, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That was James. He was given the nickname James the Just. Because he was so wise and so virtuous. He also had another nickname. It was the man with camel's knees. I know, not as flattering, huh, as James the Just. But it was because he spent so much time on his knees praying that his knees became deformed, where they were like bulging and flat and like leathered skin. Because he spent so much time praying, praying for um, the Jewish Christians that were being persecuted right there in Jerusalem, um, praying for the ones that had scattered to whom he writes this letter that we're going to study all summer and, and praying for Gentile Christians too. You realize he was already in hot water with the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. I mean, they had killed James, son of Zebedee by this time. They killed Stephen. They had imprisoned and tried to kill Peter. And And James has the guts to stay in that city, not only as the leader of the Christian movement, but then to say, you know what? I think the Gentiles, we should also accept them as believers and not require them to become Jews. That was like putting a death sentence on his head when he said that. And it didn't take that many years later that the Jewish authorities who had killed his older brother, came and grabbed him and they threw him off the temple roof. And they killed him as well. This letter that we're going to study is written sometime between 40 to 48 A.D., 
Jesus died and rose again around 30 AD. So this means this was written somewhere 10 to 15 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. It's the earliest letter written in your New Testament, closest to the time of Jesus. And what is remarkable about it is that it reflects Jesus more than any other letter in your New Testament. James, as he goes through, he is picking themes right out of the Sermon in the Mount. He's often doing it in the exact same order that Jesus did it. He is talking about the same kinds of things Jesus talked about. He uses the same grammar and speech patterns that Jesus did. Which you would expect from brothers who grew up together, huh? He knew Jesus. He knew Jesus. And what amazes me as we read, I mean, we're only on the first verse. And I promise you, we will not go one verse at a time. Next week we'll cover some more, okay? This was kind of a unique sermon, just setting up the book. But what amazes me from this first verse is that... um, James doesn't name drop. He doesn't say, well, you should listen to me because I'm the brother of Jesus. I'm the leader of the Jerusalem church. I'm the one who stayed in the midst of persecution when everybody else fled. He doesn't say that. Nowhere in this book does he name drop at all. Instead, he says, I'm James, a slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your your English translations probably say servant. And that's because um, there are rightly a lot of negative connotations with the word slave. Right? But in the original language, the Greek that James used, it, it's, it's clear. He, he's saying, doulos, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James understood that we are all either a slave to our sins, to our selfish passions, or we are a slave to the one who buys our freedom with his own blood. And James knew how much his freedom cost. He saw how much it took Jesus to buy his freedom. And the only way he wanted to be known was as a slave to Jesus Christ. And in every way, James tried to emulate Jesus, his big brother. He stayed humble like Jesus. He prayed like Jesus. We saw that when we studied Matthew that Jesus was praying all the time. So did James. He stayed passionately obedient to God the Father. That's one of the themes that you're going to see. We saw it in the life of Jesus where Jesus was willing to follow do whatever his father's will was, even when it took him into danger and took him to the cross. James was the same way. He's going to stay obedient, even to the point of putting his life in danger so that others may be reconciled to God. In every way, he tries to emulate Jesus. And in this letter, he challenges us to do the same. This letter... Really what James is doing in an indirect manner is he's just holding up a picture of Jesus. He's rephrasing all the things that Jesus taught. 
He's describing all the behaviors and attitudes that Jesus had. He's just holding up this picture of who Jesus was. And he's holding up this picture. He's writing it to those scattered Jewish Christians, right? It says to those 12 tribes, that's a reference to Jews, who are scattered among the nations. Why is he holding up this picture of Jesus to them? Well, if as we read later in James, we're going to see that they, they were struggling. They had hardships. They were also kind of bickering about who was the wisest, who should be the teachers, who should be the leaders of the church. They all considered themselves the top echelon of spiritual maturity. I mean, they were Jews. They were raised with the knowledge of the scriptures, right? They were the first ones to get saved. They were there at Pentecost. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. They saw all the miracles, you know, and they even suffered for the sake of Jesus. Like if anyone should be the leaders of the church, it would be them. And and James just looks at them. And I, I think this is so interesting because it wasn't that long before this letter, it was about 10 to 15 years before he wrote this letter, that they were all in Jerusalem, kumbayaing together, right? Where they were all unified and everything was beautiful and they were all sharing. But when the pressure came, the bickering started. And that still happens in churches today. We can all be together and it'd be wonderful, but when the hardship comes, the bickering starts. And James looks at them who are not newbies in the faith, who are deeply devoted and starting to quarrel among each other about who should lead and who should teach and who's the wisest. And with his Deformed camel needs. He holds up this picture of Jesus to them and says, this is what spiritual maturity looks like. This is what spiritual maturity is. This is what spiritual maturity is. the book of James. And as simple as it is, every time I read it, it's like a gut check and a reality check. And so I I pray that this summer as we go through James, I think you're going to find some things in it very encouraging. If you're new to following Jesus or just thinking about following Jesus, the great thing about James is how simple he makes everything. He makes it simple. But for those of us who think we're spiritually mature and we've been doing this a long time, it's going to be a gut check. Instead of measuring ourselves against one another, we start to measure ourselves to Jesus Christ. You pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for how you work. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for his brother James. And God, I just pray you will help his simple words just sink into the depths of our souls this summer. That it will refocus on us on what is truly important. That it will help us see ourselves as you do. And, and God, as James just kind of holds that mirror up to us, and instead of seeing ourselves, I just pray we'll see Jesus. And you will give us insight about how to align ourselves more and more. To Jesus, the one who paid for our freedom with his blood. I thank you for the simplicity that's in this book. I thank you that following Jesus does not have to be hard and complicated. Help us find freedom in the simplicity, God. Help us to focus on the right things. And help us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.